Well, good morning. Thanks for joining us. If this is your first time or one of your first times, we appreciate you coming. I know sometimes it's hard to step into a new place. Uh, if you're joining us online, thanks for doing that. Well, my alma mater, like many universities, has an ROTC program. This is where students can uh, contract with the military. They get a degree and they take some classes and then when they're done, they're, they're under contract for a number of years. And for most major universities like UNL who has an ROTC program, you take some military science classes, you take some leadership seminars, and you're good. At Texas A&M, it's, it's very different. If you're in the ROTC program, they run it like West Point. You dress out, you live together. And as a freshman, you go through all kinds of hazing. You gotta be up at six o'clock for an inspection and they're gonna come in and they're gonna bounce a quarter on your bed. And, and, and so um, you have to learn all this inane information about Texas A&M, like who was the seventh president? And if you don't know, and a, a sophomore upperclassman finds you, 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 who was the seventh president, you don't know that, give me a class set. Since the freshman that year was 82, the class set was 82 push-ups. Um, it's not a freshman privilege to think, at least in the Corps of Cadets. So they'll throw a, ball, a football at you and they'll say, Fist Jones, think fast, and if you caught the ball, oh, you just thought. Give me a class set. And that's how it goes. And I was in um, uh, English composition class with a guy who was in there and he was in the Corps and I got to know him pretty well, we got to be pretty good friends and I found out he was DNC. DNC means your drill and ceremony. There's no contract, you're just doing this because you like to do it. And I said to him, Sean, explain that to me, I don't get that. Oh, it's fun, he says, it's a blast. They're gonna try and get you and it's a game and, and, and then we become pretty good friends in the semester and he's, gonna, he's recruiting me you ought to get in, Andy. Do you know you can still get in? First semester, you can still get in? It's, it's so much fun. And I said, Sean, but it ain't happening. This is a non-starter. Friend, if I'm up at 6 a.m. in the morning, I'm going to the bathroom and I'm going right back to bed. It's not because I want to get my uniform inspected. But I looked at the cost of being the Corps Cadets and I thought, no way, no way, especially if there's nothing in it. There's no military contract at the end of that. Well, do you know, people look at us who follow Jesus, much like I looked at that guy who was in the core. Why would you endure this cost? Why would you do that? But I think there's good reason that we might do that, and I want to talk about that today. So if you've got a Bible, if you'd open it to John 7, we're going to start in verse 25 and go all the way through verse 52, the end of the chapter, and wrestle with this question, why embrace the cost of following Jesus? Why embrace the cost of following Jesus? If you haven't been with us, we've been in the book of John the last few months, and we've understood that John uh, was one of Jesus' disciples, and he went around in public ministry with him for about three years, and he saw all kinds of stuff. And John said, you know what? I, I, I just can't keep this to myself. I'm gonna write a record of this. And he, he said at the end of his gospel, I'm writing this that you might believe, like I believe that he's the son of God, and in believing that you might have eternal life. So there's no, there's no subtlety about his purpose. I'm convinced this guy, after three years, is the Christ, the son of the living God, and I think you ought to believe too, and if you do, you have eternal life. And we compared John to a prosecuting attorney who was looking to convict Jesus of being the son of God. And he's given us, or throughout the gospel, he'll give us seven signs, seven things. It's like, this guy did stuff that no other human being done. Like what? Well, one was he took a bunch of water and he turned it into wine, on command. And then there was a paralytic, uh, a nobleman who had a son who was sick and he gave the command and, and the guy was better. And then there was a guy, 38 years of paralytic, sitting by this fountain, wanting to get in the water when it's first stirred and, uh, stirred and Jesus said, hey, I got a better, I got an idea. Just pick up your pallet and walk. 
For the first time in 38 years, the guy walked. Later, he's feeding a crowd, and it's gotten late, and they've been out there, and there's 5,000 men, probably a crowd of 20,000. There's no Uber Eats. There's no high V in, in sight. And, and with five loaves and two fish, he, he fed the whole crowd. And then later, John records that, that Jesus walked on the water. And he's doing this for a reason, to convince you and to convince me he's the Son of God. And in him, we might, believing in him, we might have eternal life. When we, last week we opened the Feast of Booze. This was a religious celebration. It's all of John 7. We covered the first part. We understood this was a feast, um, the most popular feast of the religious celebrations. Uh, people came in and it is so much so that they had to make booze on the countryside and the, thus the term Feast of Booze. They're celebrating the harvest of the grapes and the olives. Um, and, and Jesus spoke in that. And he said to the people, you know, the reason you're not understanding me is you're not willing to do the will of God. You're not submitted to the will of God. And until you're willing to, you, you'll never understand me. And, and we're in the middle of that. The people have just heard that. And that's where we pick it up in verse 25. It says uh, this, some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he's speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? Well, what's this about? Well, the, the, the Jewish leadership had decided Jesus needs to die. He had healed this paralytic 38 years on the Sabbath, and they said, what, dude, what's the deal on the Sabbath? You violated the Sabbath. And Jesus said, look, I'm, I'm working just like my father is. And, and he was making himself out to be equal with God. And they thought at this point, this guy's got to die. And so word has gotten out. The authorities want to do that. But, well, if word's gotten out, why is Jesus publicly speaking? And the crowd thinks, well, maybe, maybe, the, uh, maybe the, uh, the authorities have done, they've done a 180. And they've come to the conclusion that, that he is the Christ. And they, they, they don't know what to do about it. So there, there's confusion. There's um, discussion. Who is this Jesus? But quickly the crowd comes to this. They say, however, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Well, yeah, he's done some amazing stuff and, and stuff we've never seen before. But the, the scriptures say we're never going to know where the, when the Christ comes. We're not going to know where he's from. And, and we know this guy. He's, he was born Mary and Joseph. We, got, we know the stable he was in. He was the birth certificate. So we got his lineage. So there's no way they conclude that Jesus can be the Christ. Well, Jesus knows what people are thinking. He knows what they're saying because he's the son of God, and he addresses that issue. It says, then Jesus cried on the temple, teaching and saying, you both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true. Now, here's the part where he gets a little offensive, whom you do not know. So Jesus is referring to the father who sent him, said, he who sent me is true, but you don't know him. You don't recognize me because you don't know him. This is very offensive to the Jewish people. If they were proud of one thing, they, in, in a pagan, polytheistic culture, they were monotheistic. They knew the one true God. They had relationship with them. They had history with them. And Jesus said, no, no, in reality, you don't know him. You don't know him. Jesus said, I know him because I'm from him and he sent me. So Jesus said, I have come from God. Uh, so they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. When Jesus came, he came to die, but he would not die. He would not be crucified until the appointed time of God. Humanity would not trump this, would not 
move it up or push it back. So no, they're not going to seize it because it isn't Jesus' time yet. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than this, which this man has, will he? And they're saying, whoa, 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 whoa. They're saying all this bad stuff about him, but Jesus has done it. He's turned the water into wine. He's fed 5,000. He's, I mean, seriously, what is it going to take for this guy's the Christ? If you've been with us, you've known that there's always been a division in the crowd. People see the same thing. They hear the same stuff. They're in the same proximity, and they reach different conclusions about Jesus. Why is that? And Jesus would say, it's a matter of the heart. Some people want to know God, and so they respond. Others don't, so they throw up smoke screens, and they say, others have control issues. They have power issues, and Jesus threatens them. And one of those groups is the Pharisees, the religious leaders. Verse 32 says, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. So, okay, now we got an arrest warrant out for Jesus, Okay. We got some people, you, 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 you go arrest this guy. And you got your, your temple authority, you go and arrest him. Okay, so you, you put that in the back of your mind. We're going to see what happens with this arrest warrant, okay? By the end of this chapter, we're going to find out how does this arrest warrant play out. And Jesus keeps on, knows what's going on, but he keeps teaching. He says, therefore, Jesus said, for a little while longer, I'm with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Now, Jesus often spoke enigmatically, cryptically, parabolically, metaphorically. Choose your words. Choose your your description. Because he's trying to separate who's interested in me and who's not. Who's willing to think more deeply about what I'm saying? And who's just looking for a, a good show? Heal me a fever. Get me a meal. I mean, what, what, what's your interest in God and Jesus? So there's a part of the crowd that they have really no interest in Jesus, and they're just thinking at a very human level. They hear he's going away. They don't understand he's talking about his death, resurrection, and ascension, and they go, well, where's he going? So here's the question they ask in verse 35. The Jews then said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? Now, some of the Jews had, had separated, and they were living in Greece, and, and is, he, is he going where we won't see him? What is this statement that he said, you will seek me, you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? They're flummoxed. They're confounded. What's that about? So, as I mentioned, we're in the Feast of Booths. This celebrates the harvest of the figs and olives, and about 200 B.C., 200 years before Christ, the Jews instituted a symbolic ritual, not mandated by, mandated by the Old Testament, but something they chose to do. And it symbolized water and life. Here's what they did. The first day, the priests would go to the south city, get some water from the river. There'd be a people that would processional in. They'd come up to the temple and they'd pour that water on the altar. They'd, they'd repeat that for six days. On the seventh day, they do it seven times. Water is a symbol of life. Uh, scholars think this was a cry to God to give them rain because they were an agricultural society. But beyond that, it looked to the power of the symbolism of water in the Old Testament. When Israel was coming, 
out of Egypt from slavery to the promised land, they passed through the desert and they were parched. They didn't have water and they cried out to God, hey, we got no water. And God said, Moses, tap the rock and water came. So they're, they're recognizing that God gives life water at command. Later, the prophets Ezekiel and Zechariah wrote about the future kingdom and they talked about a temple with a river of life flowing out of it. This is all a recognition of God is the provider of water and life. That is the backdrop for what Jesus is about to say in verses 37 through 39. Here's what he says. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, remember they've done this thing seven times, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being, will flow rivers of living water. Listen, Jesus is saying, I'm the fulfillment of this thing you've been 200 years, you're looking to God. I'm the provision of life. I'm the provision of water. This is a bold, audacious, some would say arrogant statement, but Jesus doesn't see this arrogant. He sees it as true. I'm the fulfillment of this. But this he spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. This would be manifested ultimately when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, 40 days later ascended into heaven. God would pour out his spirit. And every believer would be filled with God's spirit and and this would be a source of ever-flowing life. Remember we started asking this question? Why would we embrace the cost of following God? Remember the... The guy in the core of cadets, hey, Andy, you ought to do this. There's no way. There's no way I'm doing that. No, no way. Well, following Jesus is going to cost you something. Why would you, why would I embrace that cost? Here's what Jesus would say, according to John 7. Jesus offers overflowing life. Jesus offers fountains of life that, that, that don't stop. And you can't find it anyplace else. Jesus is the creator. He's the giver of life. He said, I will give you life in the inner being if you will trust me. So when I was a kid, my family would do these marathon road rally vacations. Where's my wife? My wife and I did one of those after we were married and after one, she said, we're done. Never again. You can talk to her about it afterwards. But this one we did three weeks I live in the Detroit area, and we made it out to Mount Rushmore, and we did the Corn Palace, and what else did we do? We did, we ended up at Disneyland, and we ended up in Tijuana, Mexico, I mean, we made this big loop, and up we came, and one of the places we stopped was Yellowstone National Park, and I think we spent two or three days there, and one of the places you had to see, or at least we saw in Yellowstone was Old Faithful. For those of you who don't know, Old Faithful is a geyser. They've been tracking it since 1939. It goes off every 60 to 110 minutes. Right now it's averaging about 90 minutes between eruptions. It will put anywhere up from 3,700 to 8,400 gallons of water at an eruption. It'll go 185 feet in the air and it'll last a minute and a half to five minutes. It'll cost you 35 bucks to see it if you want to get in and see it. But that's a treasure, man. You, you, can't, you can't miss that because this place is, this, 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 this geyser goes off and, and wow, that is amazing, that much water. And it's been doing it since 1939. And I'm gonna tell you, Jesus offers a fountain that's it's not every 
one and a half to five minutes, and it's not, you know, it doesn't last one and a half to five minutes, and it isn't every 60 to 110 minutes. It's all the time. It's life that we don't get. We don't understand outside of him. Boy, if you're here and you've uh, never made a decision to trust Christ, I'd ask you to consider it in, in light of this promise of life. See, Jesus, we just celebrated Christmas. He came born of a virgin for the express purpose to die. He's going to do three years in public ministry. He's going to die. And God had an appointed time. And it was no accident. He was sinless. He died for the sin of the world. He rose again on the third day. And uh, he did that for you and for me. He paid our sin penalty, our rebellion. If you never trusted Christ, I, I want to invite you to do that right now. If you'll do that, he'll forgive your sin and, and he'll change your heart and allow you to live in submission to God. Remember these, these people, they're unwilling to do the will of God. That's what Jesus said in John, in John 7. He'll, he'll change your heart. He'll forgive the, the, the actions of your sin, the, the, the consequences of your sin, but he'll change it. In, in the growth process, you'll begin to live the way God designed you to live. And over time, you'll be able to experience this overflowing life that he talked about. And it's, it's, it's an event and it's a process. We step into it. But that kind of life ain't found any other place. It's found in Jesus. Well, the crowd, here's again this, this opportunity. And they have a choice in how to respond. And so this is how it goes in verse 40. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. And we'll come back and talk about what that means in just a second. Others were saying, this is the Christ. God had promised an anointed one, a Messiah. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? They're taking issue with Galilee. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in just a second. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Let's talk about the prophet. That comes from Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18. It says this. This is Moses speaking. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. So Moses was the greatest of Israel's leaders. He led them out of Egypt. God worked mightily through him. And they didn't know a prophet like Moses until Jesus. And Moses says, there's one coming from me among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is according to all you asked of the Lord, your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, let them not hear the voice of the Lord, my God. Let them see this great fire anymore or I will die. Then God said to me, they have spoken well. One more time, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. Jesus was a Jew. And I will put his words in his mouth. The Father's words are put in Jesus' mouth. And he shall speak them to all that I, he shall speak all that I command him. They're saying Jesus is the fulfillment of this. Israel has been waiting a thousand years for these words. He's the Messiah. Are what others are saying. Again, there's division. Because hearts are in different conditions. People are drawing different conclusions about Jesus. Uh, one of the things they're saying is he's from, he's from Galilee. And didn't the scripture say he, he'd be the descendant of David from Bethlehem? Well, if you look at it, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was the descendant of David. But these people have camped on the fact that he grew up in Galilee. It's as if they concoct their own truth and are unresponsive to the facts about Jesus. This is what I want to believe. Don't bother me with what is true. 
He's from Galilee. Well, no, yeah, he grew up in Galilee, but he fulfilled the scriptural mandate of being born in Bethlehem and being the line of David. He has everything in line to be the Savior. So, verse 43, a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of the people wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Again, we've got division. People, different conclusions about Jesus. Now, remember verse 32? Remember some people were sent to arrest Jesus? Temple guard, you go arrest him. What about those guys? What, what, what happens? Well, here's what happens, starting in verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to him, why did you not bring him in? Remember, you were sent on a mission to arrest him. The officers answered and said, never has a man spoken the way this man has spoken. Now, these are trained priests. These officers, they're, they're Levites. They've been schooled in the Old Testament. They've set under rabbinic teaching, and they said, we've never heard teaching like this. The Pharisees then answered, them, you've not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed him, has he? And the crowd, remember the crowd, there's a bunch in the crowd which does not know the law is a curse. So there's people in the crowd who are believing, but, but they're accursed. So their response to him is to mock him. You don't really believe this, do you? Could we talk about what the substance of what Jesus said? No, no, no. They don't want to do that. They'll belittle. They'll mock. You ever been in discussions like that? Don't want to talk about the substance of who Jesus is or what he said. And then they make this statement. Not one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? And they're assuming the question, the answer to that question is no. However, verse 50 says Nicodemus... Now, if you're with us, Nicodemus was a Pharisee who came to Jesus at night, as recorded in John 3, and he, he said, dude, who are you? Jesus said, well, you need to be born again. And, he, and Jesus explained that the need to be, for, for Nicodemus and others to be regenerated, and, and, and Nicodemus said, how can these things be? And, and Jesus said, how can it be that you, Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, doesn't get this? But Nicodemus is in process. And he's starting to wrestle with the claims of Jesus. So he says, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? Because he's like, whoa, 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 you're making a carte blanche statement about Jesus. You're rejecting him. But, but doesn't our law say we hear from the person? What does he have to say? Oh, they don't want to do that. What do they do? Again, they belittle him. They answer him, you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Again, they've made up their own reality, their own truth. Oh, Jesus is from Galilee. No, the prophet doesn't come from Galilee. Well, Jesus grew up in Galilee, but he was born in Bethlehem. He was the Lion of David. You're not interested in that truth. You want to create your own reality. Do you know people who have their own reality and don't bother me with the facts? Don't bother me with the truth. And he said, we live in a post-truth culture. How far does it go back? It goes back at least this far. And we will see Nicodemus clearly identify with Jesus at his crucifixion. Listen, I know many of you are out there, and you're purposely living on mission. You represent Jesus in the schools, in the hospitals, in the restaurants, in the places you work. You're intentional about representing Jesus on your softball team, on your band, on your where you eat lunch. 
And you find out people are, are not interested in evaluating the claims of Jesus. They, they, they want to make sweeping statements, sweeping generalities, and, and let's not talk about what's true. You're not alone. That goes all the way back to Jesus' time. And, and my response to that be, is before you talk to somebody about God, you need to talk to God about them because it's a hard issue. They don't want to know. And until they want to know, your words are going to fall short. That's not to say we don't talk to people, we don't take the initiative, but we need to be praying. God will change people's hearts. But you know, at the center of this passage is Jesus' claim to give overflowing life. Remember, he said, I'm this fountain that never ends. And he's using water as a symbol. Many of you have put your faith in Christ. I know that. We share that commonality. My question is, where are you ultimately looking for life? You're looking for it in a promotion? You're looking for it in a boyfriend or girlfriend? You're looking for it in that vacation that's going to come in a couple weeks? Well, the vacation will come and go. Then, then what? Then what? Nothing wrong with having a boyfriend or girlfriend. Nothing wrong with having a job. Nothing wrong with getting a promotion. Nothing wrong with going on vacation. No, I'm not, no, no, no. Ultimately, though, where are you looking for life? Jesus said, I'm the source of unending life. I ain't like old faithful. I shoot up for a while and I take a couple hours off and I shoot up for a while and I take a couple hours off. I go and I go and I go and I go. Ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart. Where are you ultimately looking for life? So last Saturday night, I was on YouTube and I was looking at clips from the championship parade that had happened in Ann Arbor, Michigan that day. People celebrating the national championship for the University of Michigan. And I was amazed. It was really cold there. And people came out. And man, they cheered, cheered, yeah. And uh, they, they had a quarterback that had one more year eligibility and they were hoping he'd come back and he didn't. But they're yelling at him, one more year, one more, one more year, one more year. They have a coach who might leave, and they were begging that coach, don't leave, don't leave. And so why all this? Why all this? Why all this adulation? Why all this begging? Because for 15 weeks, this team brought these fans life. And boy, wouldn't it be great if we could do it again? And so we will come out, and we will worship, and we will bow down. You know, the, the bummer is about the, the season, though, it, it, it ends and, and the next one's coming. And, and, and you know, the, 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 the thrill there that well, it's short term. I know you can watch a few video YouTube clips for a while, but after a while it's kind of you've seen it all. And, and it's a desperate plea for life. Nothing wrong with having a favorite team. You love the Huskers, great. You love the Chiefs, great. Love the Wolverines, great. But they're going to bring life, not sustain life. It's a diversion. That's okay. For a few hours, diversion, okay. But what we do is we take good things and we make idols out of them. And this passage is a reminder there's one place where the water continues to flow and it never ends. There's no 60 to 90 minute gap. There's no, we run out at 185 feet. No, this, this fountain goes forever. 
and his name is Jesus. Why would we embrace the cost of following him? Because he's the source of overflowing life. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we're grateful that Jesus is the fount that doesn't stop. He gives life where uh, others give out. Lord, that we take hold, we take stock. Where are we looking for life? Lord, that we wouldn't be um, unsettled by a divided response to Jesus. That goes all the way back to his earthly ministry. People were divided. Lord, that we'd be praying for the hearts of people around us that first and foremost, they'd be willing to submit to God. Lord, I pray we'd be not just hearers, but doers of this work. I ask this in Christ's name, amen.